Okay, so a great week. I hardly know where to start, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty tough. Um, let me think. I think that um, I think we're going to start with a review, and this is where I'm going to take this and move it very strategically, temporarily. I think I'll just move it over here, and I'll use this spot in a minute. Oh, that tape is good. <laughs> it, it, the post-it notes are so cute. I, you know, they're kind of artistic. It's a quilter's, you know, thing, yeah? I know, exactly. All right, so, all right, let's start with a timeline. I love timelines. I, I cannot, I don't know how people live without timelines, really. Okay, so I'm going to put over here at the end the 1,000-year reign of Christ. This is God coming to usher in his kingdom. And that's just kind of a, and we know it's Jesus who will be ruling and reigning, right? So we know that that's the time. We know that just before that period of time is a time called Daniel's 70th week. That is a, it is a seven-year period of time. Those who did a revelation, we know how we worked all that out. It's very detailed, but we did. Um, as I said to you before, one of the things that we did was we saw how the seals were broken, how the uh, trumpets were blown, and then the, when the bowls were poured out, correct? We saw them in that sequential order, and we, we determined that they, those are locked in place in that way. So I'm just going to write those things on here as a point of reference for us. So we know the seals happen first, then it's the trumpets, correct? And then at the, and this is a three-and-a-half-year period here, and this is a three-and-a-half-year period period here. I'm not going to go into all of it, but what we know that happens right here is when Antichrist makes the people take the mark of the beast. It's the Matthew 24, was it 24, 15, where he said, in that day when you see the abomination of desolation, uh, Israel is to flee to the mountains. Now, where do we know the fleeing takes place to? Do you guys remember that part? Probably Petra. And the one, the one place that's mentioned in, uh, I think it was Zechariah, is the place named Basra, right? It's called Basra, and specifically, when you look on the map and you do your geography work on that, they're right together, this within a few miles of each other. So what we know is they're hiding in the wilderness. They go to the wilderness. I'm going to put that on here. They're in the wilderness. This is Israel, okay? They're hiding from their enemies, they're hiding from the Antichrist in that last day. Then comes the bowls. And they're called bowls of wrath. Now, not all of Israel is in the wilderness. Well, no, but many of them do. Many of them do and some don't. Good point. Many of them do flee. And Jesus gives a, a, a command at the time that he is still living and he's speaking. And he's telling them, flee to the mountains. Don't go back. Don't get your cloaks. Um, I'll pray that it's not on the Sabbath. And he gives all those details, right? All right. So the, all I'm trying to do is give you enough um, contextual insight so that when we start looking at some of these other things, you can say, well, it's not then and it's not then. 
but it's going to be UK. So, so this verse is going to go right here on the timeline, basically. I just want you to have a vid- I think the visualization of placing things in, in the place where they actually occur is real helpful. Okay, so that's what we know about there. For right now, that's all I'm going to put on there. It gives you seals, trumpets, then the bowls. We know it's divided into two periods of time. What we want to do is talk about this period of time in relationship to what we see, and then we're going to talk about this period of time in relationship to what we see. Then we know what's going to be happening here, and we're going to talk about this time. Well, we've already, last week, we put a lot of information in here. What were some of the things, let's, by review, just tell me some of the things that you remember about this period of time right here. What is God, he makes a covenant, what's it called? It's called a covenant of peace, okay? Of peace that God makes, right? With who? Israel. Okay, so God makes with Israel a covenant of peace. What are some of the things that are going to be taking place in that time frame that we've seen so far? David will be their king, and we, and we know that ultimately David is Jesus, but we also obviously are coming to see that it's also David, the physical David. So when you see those verses that seem like they're con- they're, that they can't be possible, what your brain has to do is make an appropriate assessment. Is this literal David or is this David meaning Jesus? We just have to, by context, let context rule and don't violate your known doctrines, correct? Okay, good, easy one. All right, so, but one of the things about that, when it mentions that David is going to be their king, he says, how many kings is he going to give them in that day? One king, there's going to be one king over there, meaning it's going to be a, a consolidated single kingdom. One king. I'm just going to put David in, in little quotations there, meaning that he is going, it could be, um, we know that King David comes also and gets a place of ruling. But ultimately, it's going to be speaking of Jesus. Right? All right. What else? They will live securely on their land. Oh boy, that one is going to be very interesting, the idea of what does that mean securely, because we came across that as a key word in this particular homework that we did this week, right? What else do we want to put up there that are, is significant? Anything? Okay, well, that's, if you're in Revelation, I'm talking about what we learned last week in, Eze- in Ezekiel. There you go. God will give them. So in the covenant, he gives them a new heart and his spirit, right? New heart. His spirit. Yeah, they will. They will be my people. And I, their God, right? Okay, and that's significant too, correct? Because at this point in history, has, has God really been Israel's God? Have they been obedient to him? Have they believed on his word? And in current history, which we need to put up here yet, uh, have they accepted that seed that God told them through covenant that he would be sending, who is Christ? Yes, 
The answer is no. So let's put Jesus on here. We know the church came for the rest of us, right? So it's the church age is where you and I are right now. What happened from in between the time of the cross and the church age? Something else significant. That's right. 70 AD, that temple, the second temple, also fell, correct? So now prior to this, where we, we're going to wet back all the way back up here, where we started with Ezekiel was in 605, uh, 5... Um, I always get, I always go blank. Why do I do that? 597 and then 586. Okay. Those are the three sieges, right? Of Jerusalem. The final fall of the, of them. Ezekiel is writing right in here. Ezekiel's visions they began actually in 592, correct? Because of the fact that it was five years into his captivity when his, he begins to do his visions, all right? So this is where Ezekiel is. So from here to here, which is a small space, is, we looked at chapters 1 to 32 of Ezekiel, correct? Yes. All right, let me do this. From here to here, we're chapters 1 to 32, okay? Pardon? 586. I'm so sorry. And I know I'm writing a little bit small on some of this. I, I will try to, when I move into here, we'll write bigger. I'm just trying to get everything on this little teeny space. And this is, sadly, this is the beginning. We got so much more to do here. Okay, so here we had then, at this point here in 586, then... This is when the first temple fell, correct? We know somewhere along in here then, another temple, the second temple was built, right? We didn't study any of this, so I'm not going to go into a lot of details on that. What kingdom are we in with Ezekiel? Who is it that came and captured them? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. So it's it's the king of Babylon. So the Babylonian kingdom. And what followed Babylon? Medo-Persia. Then Greece. And then Rome. Okay, so that at least gives you historically kind of a flow of how things happen. Those are just some really basics on a timeline, and it's quite a bit of information actually, but it's real helpful, I think, to, um, this is Medo-Persia here, is when they built that second temple. All right, so that just kind of lines things up and gives you a good visual. Is there anything else I should add on there that you can think of? No? All right. At um, this point, then, let's go back and let's begin with just some of the basic observations of what we saw in Ezekiel chapter uh, 38 and 39. 
And then as we can, we will move back over to this timeline and we will finish filling in and we'll make lists. We'll try to put people and events in the place that they should be, okay? Or approximately where they should be, okay? All right, let's see what we can do here. Nations of Ezekiel. We had a lot of those things. Okay, tell me what we saw in Ezekiel 38. What was the first thing that we saw in there? Tell me your key words. Obviously, Gog. Gog is really predominant in that chapter 38. Um, So let's do this here, keywords. Okay, so Gog and what else? I like that one. I did that one too, the word against. What did you, did you see a contrast when you did the word against? He, what were the two ways that the word against was used in that chapter? Okay, well, yes. And we also saw that uh, um, Gog... I, it's so hard to get, because Gog and God sound so much alike. I'm going to try really hard to say the Lord. To help me remember to do that so that we get it clear. And, so you know what I'm saying. Otherwise, it could become real complicated. Okay, we know that, that Gog came against Israel, right? But then later, what did the Lord do? The Lord came against Gog. Interesting. So that word against really was quite a, a significant word. And if you'd marked it, then looked to do lists on it, you would have seen that contrast right away. And there's a couple of others that can be added into that also. Okay, what else do we have for keywords? Living securely. Living securely. Okay. I love the I wills. And when you add the I wills in, you might as well just put in there the Lord, right? Or the Lord God, who, of course, is also key in this book, this the whole book, obviously. There you go. There's a time reference in here uh, that is, I'm just going to put time reference. Because anytime you're doing your basic observations, one of the things you'll do, particularly if you're doing a historical book, is look for time references. And this one has that phrase, in that day, the latter days. Uh, Anything else that you can remember latter days? After many days. Yeah, I got that one up, okay the latter days, in that day or on that day and after many days. So are you all guys already beginning to see that, that where we talked a couple of uh, weeks back, actually for the last two weeks I think I've mentioned it, that anytime you see that phrase, in that day, most of the time, not always, so don't say Katie said always, but most of the time it is speaking of in that day, right? And you start seeing then the activities that God is going to do. And what are the activities pertaining to in that day? has something to do with the activities here at the end of the age when God's about to usher in his kingdom, right? He's about to. So what we can do here is say like this, in that day. And what we have also come then to see is, is in that day a specific day or is it a period of time? 
It's a period of time. It's a generalization statement about some activities that are going to happen in that time frame. Now, when that time frame starts of in that day is something that you need to do more research and study so that you can more clearly define what in that day is referring to. But for those of you who did the Revelation course with me, do you remember what mostly in that day is referring to? What kind of activities? The wrath. It's mostly talking about the wrath of God being poured out correct? And all those activities even that lead up to that, but the wrath of God is in that day. That's when he is going, the hammer is finally going to fall and God is actually going to deal with and judge unrighteousness and and judge the nations, right? So in that day, mostly seems to start at about this time frame here at the middle point in that day and move forward until he completes everything that he says to us in scripture about in that day. Okay. There's another phrase. In the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a little trickier because the day of the Lord, how many of you have seen in the day of the Lord? Have you, can you think of some times when you've seen it in Scripture that it does not relate to here? Okay, but will that fall in this time frame? When is the heavens and the earth dissol- dissolved here? Do you know? At the end of the year. So we're going to have new heaven and new earth, right? And that's because what has happened to the old earth? Right. It is going to be, it says in Revelation that it fled from the presence of the Lord is what it says in the book of Revelation. Um, So we see that old earth will be destroyed and the new heaven and the new earth will be gone. That will happen at the after the thousand year reign. There's going to be, though, this 1,000-year reign while God works upon this earth through his covenant people Israel, doing for them and through them exactly what he told them and promised them that he would do, right? We also know this. There's a little caveat I'm going to, or a little tidbit of information just for those who didn't do it. Remember the idea of the kingdom of God being established at this point? How long does the kingdom of God then go on? Forever. Now, it's obviously location-wise going to change its place. We're going to go from this physical earth into this physical earth, but still this whole thing is going to, ha- going to be the kingdom of God when he does it. The kingdom of God, God does not change. Uh, it doesn't end in a new kingdom of God, begin in another, at another time when that, when that event happens. It simply moves forward into the new heaven and the new earth. This earth will be destroyed but the, but, and the new one will begin, but the kingdom of God goes on from the time it's established from that point forward. Yeah. So the same kingdom will be God comes with us after the millennium. Jesus will be with us. Yes, after the right. God and that's a whole, yeah, this whole other additional piece right. of information. Well, yeah, except that the kingdom, all I'm saying is that title, the kingdom of God. Once the kingdom of God is established, it remains forever. It doesn't, ever go away it never gets um, reestablished it never gets destroyed by anyone else and then he has to come in and do it again none of that ever happens even though we are going to see that there's going to be something significant that happens at the end of this time frame and I'm just going to put a little marker here to remind us to talk about it there's going to be something right here that's going to happen and I want you to, to to help me remember what that is, okay? So that we don't forget to talk about that later. Okay. 
All right, so we've got in that day, latter days, after many days. So now we've kind of talked about what that phrase means, right? Everybody's okay. Is it, any questions on that, guys? Everybody's good with it? Well, I, th- I thought we would because most of you did do those studies, so it's great. Okay, any other key words? Israel themselves. I will, the Lord Israel. Or the land of Israel. Israel and land of Israel. And then those nations. There's Gog and the hordes of God. Isn't that interesting? Did you all catch the fact that sometimes it's calling, it talks about the hordes of Gog, of Gog and that those uh, seem to encompass also other nations, abundance of nations. So if the, thinking on it from that perspective, if Gog is spoken of as a prince, correct? How, is that how he's titled, the prince? What does that tell you who he is? He's some kind of a leader. He's some kind of a political, a, a, a power, or a world leader, is he not? All right. And when he goes to do these things against Israel, what did you see that he had with him as a support system? A lot of nations, a lot of other kingdoms that came in with him. What does that sound like to you in reference back to what we studied in uh, Revelation? Yeah, sounds like that coalition group that came in and they all worked together to come against Israel, right? Even in the Revelation, same thing. So it's like we're, every time I read through every point I came across, I went, oh, that's this. Oh, that's this. I, could, I just kept, it, Revelation just kept popping up and everything that was said I could plug it in. And when, I, when Revelation didn't fully develop it, Daniel plugged in the rest. It was just awesome. I love the precept that we've been doing here. I like it every once in a while, God puts in that my land. My land. I love that too. Now, what does that say to you? Do you remember, was it Paul that talked about, he says we are, that we are uh, aliens and we are sojourners. In other words, we're here temporarily. And it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God, right? I like that. So Israel and land of Israel, and it is I will and the Lord will, and, he's, and you might want to do with the I wills that it's his. Okay, so you might want to mark that his part. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's cool. And why is that a significant point at this point in our timeline of, of Ezekiel? Right. And what had Ezekiel seen earlier in in the book? What had God done earlier? He had already departed. So if you're speaking of this from the perspective of a prophetic utterance from God's prophet to the people, the people have seen God leave, right? They've been abandoned. And you know that that those that had even an inkling of interest in the presence of God in that day must have felt a little fear, at least, to say the least, probably, right? So when God began to give words through his prophet Ezekiel and speaking to the people and saying to them, I am the Lord your God in Israel, it's like, okay, your presence is not here, but you are here. I think of that from the, from the perspective of how we see God today. Is he omnipresent even with us? 
Is he in the world today? Is he in our lives? Is he in America even? Even though it feels like when you look around, he has, he's not doing any of this. It just looks like evil man, right? And yet through this utterance to him, what we're seeing is that God is the sovereign of the universe. And it really did take us back to Daniel where it says that, he, and God is in control of the fact that he raises them up and he puts them down. How did we see that in 38 and 39, that God raises up and puts down? Yes, he does. What was he controlling in 38 and 39? Who did he bring up and then put down? Gog. He brought Gog up and said, Gog, I'm going to bring you up to do what? Go against Israel. I want you to come against them in battle. And then the very next thing he says to him is, and Gog, now that you're here, what? I'm going to squash you. (laughs) I'm I'm going to crush and destroy you. And then the next part, we see that word death come up. That's in the next uh, chapter. Okay, so Gog against living securely. We see all the references to God and his possessiveness of everything that shows us his sovereignty subliminally there, just shows the sovereignty of God. We see Israel in the land of. We see all those time references. Um, There was a sanctify. I would say there was one more, and that was sanctify that we want to make sure we get. There are other possibilities as well. And if there are other words you marked, that's just fine. I have a bunch marked. Um, but those are the most important ones. So, all right. Now, let's look at the um, flow of thought in here. Let's talk about our theme. Let me get a different color here. Theme. What is the theme for this chapter? The predominant su- per, uh, personage of sub- or subject in this is who? Gog himself. So your title should have Gog in it, okay? And say it again. I didn't hear. Okay, Gog. Gog will be judged. And the first couple of verses in, in that chapter, he says to Ezekiel, prophesy to him, right? And then he tells him what he's to say to him. He says, and what about him? I'm going to do what? I will bring Gog against who? Israel. It's very interesting. So it's a prophet. He's to prophesy against Gog. And yet the primary statement when he prophesies to him is, I'm going to bring you against Israel. That, that's almost like a backwards message, isn't it? It's like, wait a minute. Are you for me or against me, God, <laughs> Lord, right? <laughs> Are you for me or against me? But he says to prof- prophesy against God. Gog, and then he says to them, I'm going to bring you against, I will bring Gog against Israel. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Maybe, or maybe just showing you the sovereign control of the fact that he is leading nations to do his will, right? It's kind of like when, do you remember Pharaoh, the story of Pharaoh with Egypt, when they were in Egypt? We had the same thing happen there where it talks about hardening his, Pharaoh's heart, but had Pharaoh already hardened his heart? 
Yes. So all God did was take a man who already had an evil heart and evil intentions and he used him for his purposes and so that he would be magnified or glorified in the eyes of the Israelites of that day. He was trying to show to Israel in that day, I am the Lord your God, right? Because they, they had not known their God at, to this point. Remember Moses said, who shall I tell the people that sent me? And he had to present himself to them as the I am, right? The covenant-keeping God. So here we see the same kind of scenario going on in the days of Ezekiel where God, again, is simply saying, I am the sovereign and I will put a hooker in the jaw of him and I will lead him, I will bring him, I will draw him, I will... Because why? Oh, you know what I thought of? I thought of a verse. Let's see if I've written it down in here. Yes. Second... Somebody go here for me so look at it. Second Timothy 2... 19 to 21, and then also 1 Timothy 2, 4. I just want to look at these two very, very quick. It's nothing to do with the homework you did, but it came to my mind, and it's in relationship to this idea that God, is, God uses both the saved and the unsaved in this world to accomplish his purposes, right? What does it say in 2 Timothy 2, 19 to 21? Okay, wait a second. Maybe I didn't give you enough first. Second Timothy two nineteen. Okay. Oh, sorry. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Okay, there you go. Keep going. You can keep going. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Okay, that's far enough. Okay, so what he's saying in that passage is that God has created all humanity. And in humanity, his desire is that none perish, all should come to faith. Is it, was that the Second Timothy 1? Okay, that, read it out loud for me. 2-4. First Timothy 2-4. Does somebody want to read that real quick? Just to be sure that I'm actually in the right place in my mind. Okay, so God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's in 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy, then he says, but God also created all humanity, right? And he says, he, and he talks about them as vessels, some who are for noble purposes, some for ignoble, meaning un- dishonorable purposes. And so what God, all God is saying there is, although he wants them all to be saved, will they all be saved? No, no because what's the factor in here is free will. Man has a choice to make whether to bow his knee before God, right? And, and yet God says, still yet I will use all humanity to accomplish my sovereign purpose, my sovereign will for those who love me, right? All right, so the, this is kind of what we're seeing here in this Ezekiel chapter 38 where he 
he grabs hold of this man named Gog, who's going to be a leader, a prince in that time, and he will grab him by the jaw and drag him and bring him to do exactly what God wants him to do. Now, if that individual wanted to bow their knee to God, would God prevent that? Of course not. So don't mess up your doctrine by saying, oh, well, then God's just making him, that poor soul, he's a victim. No, he's not. He's made a choice. But because he made the choice he did, God is going to use him for ignoble purposes, but, but to ultimately bring God glory, to bring about God's fulfilled plan. Do, are you seeing what I'm trying to point out? Everybody with me? Any questions on that? Uh-huh. Yes, yes, exactly. So he, do, and yet he also says before that, he says, I will put in your mind that you should do these things. So it's like you can see this, this, this work of God where on the one hand, he, his greatest desire is that a man will come. And he won't ever force a person to do something that they would not otherwise do. But simply that God, knowing the person has rejected, like Pharaoh, and therefore, he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could then execute all these judgments sequentially one by one until Israel saw God's glory before their eyes and that this would show them who their God was. Yes. Before them. And at this point, he's also doing... So he's really doing it for everybody. He's doing it so that Israel will know who he is. And he's doing it so that the nations will know who he is. And ultimately, and first and foremost, he's doing it for what? His holy name. He's doing it to vindicate his holy name, to show himself as righteous and holy and um, the Almighty that he is, right? So... Yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, that's another one. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. That's a good one. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, right. I love that. That was excellent to bring that one up, Celeste, because that's a good one. Nebuchadnezzar, who started out as an enemy against God's people, he brought them into their captivity, right? right. But in the storyline, if you go into the book of Daniel, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar eventually? He gets salvation. Yeah. He, but after he spends seven years in the field with the beasts of, as a beast of the, animal, of, of the kingdom of the animals... And God then, at the end of seven years, he turns his heart, he bows his knees, and he praises God most high, which is what that book is about, that God is most high. All right, so now that's a, you know, in this particular study at this point, and, and I knew this was going to happen with Ezekiel eventually, there, it, it is a, a web of a lot of doctrinal points that are all coming together. You, and you almost have to have a little bit of knowledge on a lot of different things. And even if you haven't fully developed that, what I would say to you, if you're still kind of scratching your head and going, I'm not sure I'm getting all this, what I want you to do is know this first and foremost. 
in the book of Ezekiel, if you will, as you progressively go through this, make a list of the characteristics of who God is. Who is God? Let's start with that. Who is God that we know him? We've already said he's sovereign. He is holy. Okay, he is just, meaning um, fair, and, and he's fair in judgment, correct? Okay, he's the master. Oh, wow. Long-suffering and patient. Pretty much the same thing, right? Any other points? The, in this chapter, he, at the close of 39, we see some qualities about him. He, t- he speaks about what he's going to do for Israel in that day when he has accomplished these things. And he talks about pouring out what on them? His grace and his mercy, right? So he's merciful. He's full of grace. He's so faithful. That patience kind of brings that out, but he's so faithful. Faithful to do what? To fulfill his word. He, he is good. So he, there's that holy, good, just and judge. Do you see how this can be of great value to you if you make a list like this when you start this kind of a study? Because what happens is, is if you get uh, into a place like what we've just been talking about, the idea that there's, there's this balance of things between God using the noble and the ignoble on the, the face of this earth as far as mankind is concerned, men who love God and men that don't. And in both cases, God uses them, right? But he never forces anyone to stay in the court of unbelief. His desire is that they would come to believe. What is the one thing that he has been saying over and over in this book to Israel and to others? Repent and turn back. He says that he... So he desires repentance. He desires repentance. Uh, from sinful men. And that does not mean you turn about and you never sin again, does it? What does that actually mean? Yes, you have a heart not to. And, and therefore, thus, in this day, what's it going to do? It's going to give them a new heart to cause them to walk after his way. It doesn't mean that we will do it perfectly. You and I don't do it perfectly. But what God has done for you and I who are in faith is he's placed within us his spirit that says, I want to do it perfectly. I want to please the Lord. I want to honor him. Now, sometimes my own selfishness can get in there and thwart me, right? I can thwart my own self, trip my own self up. Honey, do you you need to give a confession, sweetheart? (laughs) No, he was going to tattle on me probably. (laughs) Okay. Honey, you're not being very Christ-like. That's right. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're wrong, and then you can just consider me the voice of God. <laughs> Speaking to you saying, sweetheart, <laughs> turn, or <laughs> turn or burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, this is the difficulty of marriage in one classroom. <laughs> okay, all right. So, all right, now, 
All right, so his holy name, these are, the, these are the standards, principles, who he is. This is what we need to keep before us as we're studying. And then never do what? Rule number one is never what? All right, never violate known doctrine. Okay? So our known doctrine is all these qualities of who Christ is and who God the Father is, and those things will not be violated in his fulfilling of the, these things that he is saying about Israel in that day. Even when he does something like he did with Gog, and he calls Gog to perform an act which ultimately leads to his what? Demise and destruction, right? But even yet in that, is God just and fair? In his yes. judgment, is he, is he still full of mercy and grace? And does he still desire that they would repent? Yes. Absolutely. But he's given them every opportunity and every opportunity. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting. Do you remember back when we looked at Edom? How long has Edom been an enemy to Israel? It's an everlasting enmity is what I remember that phrase was. And I thought that is quite profound. And it's through Esau. You go all the way back to the beginning. I would even say, let's take it all the way back before that. Where did this all start as far as this kind of enmity against God? With Satan in the Garden of Eden where he was saying, did God say? Right? Let's just not, let's just not do what God says because, you know, we're going to thwart him. We're going we're gonna to rise up against him. We're going to do it our way. Right? Yeah, he's holding, he's just, he doesn't really want good for you, right? It's all about him, right? Exactly. It's so sad. Anyway. Says, you know what? Eve said, Eve said, Adam, eat the apple. <laughs> there you go, honey. You and her ought to sit at the same table. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So now let's move on to our paragraph titles. We've got the theme, which is that I will bring Gog against Israel. We know that when God does this, this is not unfair or unjust. This is not a, a sovereign God who is lording over a people or a man and telling him what he must do. However, on the other hand, God is obviously leading him, right? So we see the sovereign God of the universe over all these things. All right, what is our first few verses? About it's verses one through six. Yes, I am against you, Gog. Okay, and what is the storyline going on in there? That is a good title, Diane. Okay, he's calling you, and he said, and who is it that? What is the emphasis in there again on the I will? Who is going to be doing this? I will do this. God is the one doing this. It's very interesting because although later he talks about God having this uh, evil plan, his, him devising it himself, and yet God, it says here in this very first verses, right, right out of the chute, he, God wants you to know, God is the one who is uh, uh, being led by the Lord. And he, so he says, I will bring you against... Israel, right? And, well, actually, he says, I will bring you. I'm going to redo this. Hold on. I will bring you. And he's going to bring him, but he's going to bring him from where? Because I think the location is significant in this record. Out of the north. I will bring you out of the north. 
Now, I did it that way simply because I thought it was a good identifying marker. When, when you guys did your homework this week on Gog, what, did you, what were some of your conclusions about who Gog is? We know ultimately Gog is a leader, right? So we'll put on here, he's a, it calls him a prince, or, so what we know is that he is a leader. And it could even be a chief prince. Right. I like that idea that he's a chief leader. Because when, it, when you want to move that into what we know about the end times through the book of Revelation, what do we know happens when that coalition of kings comes together to come against Israel? Is there anyone amongst them that seems to take the lead on it? Yeah, that little horn rises up, right? And it even talks about in the beginning that there are ten. The little horn rises up and he subdues and uproots three of those other leaders. So in the end, you end up not with ten, but with how many? Eight, right? Because eleven minus three is eight. <laughs> Math working for you? <laughs> Elizabeth is giving me this. <laughs> it was too simple, I know. <laughs> All right, so I will bring you up out of the north. I think that's important. So I'm going to put even going to give myself a little, um, a little compass signal up there just to remind myself of where that is and when we got done with looking at this where did you see all of these nations by the way what were some of the other nations then that he brings with them in verse five persia ethiopia put gomer beth togarma right uh then you go over to verse 13 it says seba and dedan and tarshish right Okay, so did you guys mark your maps like you should have? Yeah, that looks like Spain. Yeah, I put it's all the way over over here. It looks like or is that Greece? No, no, it's the Oh, it's by Italy. It's on the other side. You're right. It's past France. You're right. You're right. It is. No, it is. I've got it marked on here. I just looked at it wrong. Huh? Yeah. So did you all mark that? When you were finished marking that, where is Israel on your map in relationship to all of these? Right in the center of it. Do you remember another statement in here, how Israel is described, that she is located where? At the center of the world. So we have then a a good visualization once we're done that, that, that she's at the center. Now, who is north of Israel on the things that you did mark? All those things which are described right there in the opening, right? That he is the prince, of, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, right? So, and when you look at those uh, names, what modern-day place are we talking about? A Turkey, it looks like. Now, we, you know, this is one of those things where a lot of people debate, you know, well, what countries is this? Is this going to be this place or is it going to be that place? And where is America going to be in all of this, Right. But when you look at this on a map and you look at it from the perspective of of real life and real world and where we are right now and things, does this not make sense that these would be nations that surround her, that are kind of geographically in her domain, correct? One of the things that we saw um, also in the book of Daniel was this. When we got into Daniel chapter 11, it talked about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. When they speak of north and south, what are they speaking of in relationship to? 
north and south of Israel. So Israel is at the heart. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm not saying I'm, I am. All I'm saying is that, that if we simply look at a map and color in the ones that were given to us in Scripture, particularly looking at it from the perspective of, in Ezekiel's day, what he is told. Okay? And that is a real huge plumb line for us. If we will say, what did Ezekiel know these to be? Because that's who God was speaking to and through. And so by marking them on the map using those points of reference, what we see is this. Okay? Now, does that mean that Russia or China or some of these other places that people put in there are not going to have alliances with these people and they're all going to join? Who knows? Yes. True. That's exactly right. That's right. Well, and I've even heard other things, too. I mean, I've heard some really wild speculations. I would say for us as Bible students that we simply anchor ourselves in the truth points for Ezekiel. Ezekiel said these lands, right? So this is what I would hold on to fast and say, you know what? So far has God fulfilled every word exactly exactly and so for me that's huge because since God seems to always do it exactly as he said even though it looks impossible to us or illogical to us at the moment it's kind of like Israel was Israel even on her land 70 years ago she wasn't even in a nation anymore and we were substituting the church for Israel and all the things that were being spoken to her because we couldn't logically figure out how it could be possible that God could be actually speaking about Israel, right? So I'm going to say to you this in the same manner because God always does, seems to do things exactly. The safest place for you to land is to say, you know what, I don't know for sure, but this is the map that God gave to Ezekiel. All right, and that for that reason, I would say this is probably going to be it in some fashion. Who they're called at that time, I don't know, but he talks about them coming from the north, so it's going to be north of Israel, whoever they are, and there's going to be some sort of an affiliation with these who are called by these names, Meshach and Tubal and so forth. Those we know are located in Turkey. So somehow it's going to get filtered through that arena of people groups, okay? Yes. Yeah, those are the north, and the, uh, Syria is still north also. And there'll be some, some kind of an alliance going on even, I would think, probably with Syria. We saw that in Daniel. That was in Daniel in chapter 11. Yeah, I know, and ISIS is changing the whole face of the world right now. There's, uh, who knows what it's going to look like by the time we get there, huh? Yes, yeah. No, it doesn't, it does Nothing surprises me anymore, yeah. Yes. Well, it was small in perspective, but still, you're right. It definitely does not have the land mass that God wants it to have. 
It's not the landmass that God designated when he spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And we know that when, in the verses that we have seen, like in, I think there's one in Jeremiah that elaborates on the, the breadth of it and where it all goes. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But, but I know it's going to be larger. You're right, eventually. The other thing that's going to change here is there's going to be something that occurs during this time at the beginning of it when that coalition comes together. What is going to happen to Israel at the beginning of all of this? Peace. Is it going to be real peace? Is it going to be that living securely in the land kind of peace? Apparently not, but, but it's described in here to us, is it not? What, what are some of the things that they talk about in verse 11? Unwalled villages, no bars, no gates. They're going to be living securely. So there's apparently some kind of, in their mind, a thinking that they're living in peace. And therefore, then what this nation Gog does is what he goes, aha, now I can get them. Because what will they have done? What will Israel have stopped doing for themselves? What is Israel today as far as militarily? They are one of the, they are, if not the best, they are up there as one of the best in the world, right? And for a teeny little country like they are, they can really defend themselves. But apparently, at this time in history, uh, Gog is going to come against them because now they're going to get to a place where they are without walls, having no bars and or gates. Meaning, translated what? They're very vulnerable and they're, all their guards are down. They will have stopped feeling the need to protect themselves, right, against the world. To have maybe their military, military will have been drawn down and defunded through some leader. Sounds familiar. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so. I want to make sure you get this on the timeline. Okay. So what do, you, what do you want me to put on the timeline? We will eventually. We have to get there. We have to get there. We know there's going to be peace. Okay, what we can say is that in, in Daniel, I'm just going to give it to you, Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is that uh, prophecy for 70 weeks, right? And, and it's for uh, Israel and Jerusalem. It's for the nation of Israel and for the city Jerusalem. And, se- and he says, in 70 weeks, these things shall be fulfilled. That's Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And in that, he talks about a covenant. How long is the covenant for? Seven years. How much is this time right here? Seven years. So it's going to be seven-year covenant. And in that time of that covenant, what do you guys remember what they are told that they're going to be allowed to do during that time? They're going to go back to be able to sacrifice in the temple. So it sounds like there's some kind of peace going on, doesn't it? In this seven years, it sounds like because Israel's going to be allowed to actually even go back and sacrifice at their temple, what would happen if they did that today? Oh my goodness, there would be all-out World War III that would take place. But there's going to be a covenant, a seven-year covenant that's going to be made with the Antichrist, who is that prince that's called in, in that verse, the prince who is to come. 
He is the Antichrist. They're going to make a seven-year covenant with him. Right? It starts right here. Okay? Well, that's, I, hadn't, I wasn't quite ready to go there, but what do you guys think? <laughs> Could be. I mean, what we know is the Antichrist is the, the leader among the leaders. He is the head of the coalition, so to speak, of those ten toes who come together up front, right? He comes in and he subdues the others and he rises up. He's called the little horn in the book of Rev, uh, Daniel. So is he Gog is the question. And my answer is at this point, it sure looks like it to me. And so what we need to do is continue to build on this and try to add. Remember, again, what did we say? The best way to identify things is to look for what? Common qualities and characteristics, the events and the activities that they do, the, and the way that they are portrayed through Scripture. So the best way to do that is make your lists on things so that you accumulate all the information that you can learn about who this Gog is, What's his personality? What does he do? At what time in history does he seem to be falling in? Uh, what is his relationship to Israel? Because that's really significant when we look at in the, this in-time activity. So you're going to make a list of all these things about who God is, and then what you can do is take that list then and go back to your Revelation study, pull out the Antichrist at the end of the age, look at that little horn, and say, is this, does he look like he could be the same guy? Right? I'm still working on it. At the end. Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute, in a little bit. But <laughs> okay, go ahead. It's a good question, you guys. So, And it's only through... Um, analyzing it and saying what happens before and what happens after on each one of these events that you're going to get your answer on that. And um, so go ahead and finish at... I know. I'm hoping... I'm hoping... Yeah, right. There's horses. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so here's what I would say, Carol. We're, I know it's frustrating. Just hang on. You know, I can remember, I can remember there, were, there have been things in Scripture that for me I've spent years on. And I would ask every pastor and every friend and every Bible student, what do you think about this? Well, what do you think about this? And what do you think? And I would, and I, no, I would get blank stares and nobody could quite give the answer. But with this one, I think by the time we're done with this class, you'll have your answer. But hang on till we get through. We want to lay all the foundational pieces down so that when we're done, it's not me telling you, it's you seeing it for yourself. Oh, that's the logic. You're right. It has to be this or it has to be that because, and then you'll know why, okay? So hang on. All right. Wow, good for you.
Okay. Yes. Well, you know, that is, that is ultimately why God did what he did, is it not? He gave us his written word before it happens so that as things start to happen before our very eyes, we'll go, oh, my gosh. God said that. How many times did, did he not even do it here in these two chapters where he said, these are the things I, is this not, are you not the one I wrote of? Before in prophecy? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's so exciting when you see God is actually performing exactly what he said. That's why I say, hold on to this map for your determination of who you think these different kingdoms are. Because honestly, I'm not smart enough to say, oh, it's this kingdom. When it happens, then we'll know. When it's fulfilled, then we'll know. But this is what we do know. They are north of of Israel. Whoever this, this king Gog is, he comes from north of Israel. That eliminates a lot of places on planet Earth, including America, right? right? So whoever this, this Gog is that does this, who's, who's the chief leader among the leaders of nations at that time who comes against Israel, it's not, it's not a leader from America. As much as we want to attach that to some personages, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. And it's going to be, they're going to get there and they're going to have a pseudo peace for, the, for a period of time. They just don't know that God's calling them there for the day of judgment. And if they knew the word of God, they would understand that fully. They may not go. If they just got saved, they could stay here. <laughs> Probably be safer. <laughs> but God has got his, his job going. So this is what I say hang on to. This is, this is your absolutes. That if somebody asks you a question, you can say, I don't know, but this is, my, this is the drawings. These are the places. You can see them marked on my, on my map. That's what I know for sure. This is what I can say. Absolutely. But beyond that, who, the reality, when it get, all gets worked out, who's going to be in a coalition together? Who's going to actually be in charge of those land masses at any given point in time? Will Russia have come down and, or China have come down and taken it all over? And I don't know. I'm just saying... No, they're, they're covered in Daniel. Yes. No. Iran, Syria, uh, all of those are all kind of... In, Egypt gets brought in also in Daniel. And D- Egypt gets brought in even in Ezekiel. He says, and, and if in that day they don't come up to worship, I won't rain on them. Okay, yes. Uh-oh. Okay. No, we know there's not. Would anybody think that Israel's in security? Does anybody think that today? No, absolutely not. Okay. But these nations, weren't they 
At this moment in history, that's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. And we don't know what that will mean later. We don't know what's going to happen between now, the church age, and when all this actually starts to unfold. As you know, in, look at our world, how fast things have changed just in the last eight or ten years, right? We've had a huge, yeah, it's just been a huge change just with the uprising of certain things in the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. Good point. Right. Actually, my, uh, my son texted me, my son, our son, texted me yesterday and said um, he just saw a report that they're, they're starting to crucify people also. Anything to be horrifying and bring terror in your heart, that is terrorism at its max, huh? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes, we've seen that on the internet a lot in the last couple of years. That's right. Okay, I'm going to rein everyone back in now. Now we're back on task with let's get through the paragraphs, okay, so we can get these titles out. Okay, in 7 to 9, we see a, a, a marker used for the time reference, and it's what? After, or in the latter years. Doesn't it say that also? In the latter years in verse uh, 8. After many days you will be summoned, and then he equates that after many days being in the latter years. So he identifies what, it, what those in many days means. It means in the latter years. So when you're looking at eschatology, the latter years are when? In that day, right? Okay. So he's saying in the latter years, what will happen? God will be summoned. Okay. So in latter years, God will be and I love that, that title because it, it, it shows you that God is the sovereign in that. And he's going to be su- uh, summoned to Israel. Okay? 10 to 13, what do you see? What is he doing? How is he, how is he? He's making that devious plan. You will demise. You will demise. An evil plan. Why is it evil? First, we, we automatically say it's because it's against Israel. But how does the text describe why it's evil? What's going on with Israel at the time they come against them and devise this plan? They're living securely. They think they're at peace. They, have, they think they have no worries. For some reason, they've been in, given an assurance that they don't need to be on their guard and protecting themselves so they've let their guard down and they're living securely that's why this is an evil plan when it's planned against them that's right yes i remember that i remember that it was very interesting Don, you were there for that one, too. Do you remember that when she said that? And we were all going, oh, don't believe your government, guys. <laughs> you know, 
Okay, so it's, I will bring Gog against Israel. Gog, uh, let's see. Okay, so Gog will demise an evil plan. In the later, later years, Gog will be summoned, and I will bring, I'm going to switch that to Gog. I will bring Gog out of the north. So this, the reason I switched the wording on this just a little bit is because, remember, when we have a title, we want all our paragraphs to relate back to the title. So it says, I will bring Gog against Israel. What is he going to do? I'm going to bring them out of the north. In the latter years, I, I will summon them, and then I, they will de- uh, demise an evil plan. So you see how everything is relating back to that title, right? Devise. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Well, they're demise. You're right. <laughs> sorry. Good catch. Devise an evil plan. Okay. 14 to 16. Yeah, and when are they coming against Israel? Gog will come against Israel in those last days, in the latter years, right? But it's when Israel is doing what? is living securely. Now, boy, would you say that already now then we have a a pretty good indication that this has not yet happened? Right here. The idea that they're living securely. And Carol, this is going to help you a lot because as we develop this list, you're going to be saying, well, it's when they're living securely. So when is that living securely and which one is it talking about? And you're absolutely right. Is it talking about securely as in the day when God's spirit is dwelling within them, they're on the land and everything has been cleansed? Or is it some other time in history when they had a thinking that they were living securely? Because in this reference here, obviously they're not living securely, are they? They're being told, obviously, (coughs) that they are... some kind of peace. Hold on a second. I need a drink of water. They're under a false or a pseudo peace, some kind of false illusion that they are secure. Because what happens is at the end of it, of, of what's uh, laid out here for us is Gog comes against them, and it's a great war. There's a great battle. I love that. On horses. Okay. Okay, is that in 11, uh, 14 to 16? Okay. Well, we also know that then you can cross-reference it into Revelation when you, put it, when you do it that way. That's why you brought that up. I know exactly why she brought that up. Why do you think, just for a reality check right now, what might happen in the world that would cause people to stop using cars and vehicles and go to horses? Do you think that's even a possibility in our world today that we would ever have to do that? What kind of things might have happened to make us... Oh, that's it, James. Good one. Oh, you are in... And our president would be so proud of you to, for bringing that up. <laughs> it's real. Yeah, exactly. What might happen, do you think? I mean, we can, honestly, there's a, I got to tell you that unless you lay this out in timeline of events that have been taking place from these unfolding things that you see here, unless you understand that there are these events that have happened, 
with the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and all these earthquakes and floods and plagues and things turned to waters turned to blood and and hailstorms from the heavens and so forth unless you put it all in perspective to that and, and get this put in the right time frame your question would be oh that's ridiculous it can't be really horses that has to be symbolic right that would be what we would do we would do that but once you start looking at the reality of what god says he's going to have done in that day then you start to say oh my goodness how how good would what good would cars be in that day how much better would horses really be potentially right could it be that we actually do go back to horses in that day everybody's going yeah yeah i know carol's going i'm not sure they're not all going to be destroyed it's not all going to be gone carol because there's going to be people still alive on the earth there's going to be enough food and water for people and horses to still live, yes. They aren't going to be told. But is a significant amount of things going to be destroyed? Yes. But if you think about it from the perspective of earthquakes and the, the topical uh, of the land being so uh, destroyed, so much destruction, it's going to be really hard to get on a road and travel anywhere. It's probably going to be hard to get gasoline. It's going to be hard to, I mean, it's going to, be hard to do a lot of things. So the idea of seven years of this kind of devastation that's going to happen according to what Revelation tells us in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, it is quite logical that we would actually go back to real horses. We might have solar power for the cars to live. Might, but there's no road for them left, yeah. Yes, isn't that interesting? Yes. Wow, good good catch. Did you hear what she said? She was talking about the cattle as being plunder. One of the things that they're going to go to Israel to plunder is their cattle. Because why? Food. Food supplies are going to be scarce. So if they have an abundance of cattle in Israel at that day, which God has blessed them with to keep them alive, then that's going to be a place where they're going to want to go and plunder them. That makes sense. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Or is the seven years a, a sanctified allotment of years that God says this is the time of cleansing? At the, yeah. Why not at the, why not right here? Seven years of cleansing. I'm putting what at the end. Okay, don't confuse Armageddon with Gog and Magog. Okay, are you thinking this is Gog and Magog rather than Armageddon? No, I think, I think Gog and Magog is different than Armageddon. They are. And I think that this purpose is a very beginning of the tribulation. It's not a month before, it's seven years. It takes to go. The Armageddon happens at the, in which bowl? Right, okay. So let's just put this on here. Armageddon, we know Jesus returns. We'll put it right here. And this is Har-Mageddon, okay? We know that that is in the seventh bowl. 
correct? Okay. Why would you do that? Okay, okay, hold on. What you have to do is you have to lay in all the pieces to the, the I mean, there are, there are probably 50 or 60 um, references we can go to and we can lay them all together. What you have to do then is get a whole place. What we know what, that's going on right here in the first three and a half years is what? Peace. A pseudo peace. True, true, but those are not the ones coming against Israel. They're things that are going on on the earth in general, and I would think those are probably the times when these kings who are coming up and they're building their kingdoms and so forth. But it's not that direct assault against Jerusalem or Israel at that time. Yep, yep. But this war is against who? Israel. Okay, now you're going to Gog and Magog. I'm talking about Armageddon. This, okay, so I'm going to give this, so you guys, I want to give this a title so that we can kind of, I know it really gets confusing. I want to give this a title. This is a prophecy against Gog, and he's going to bring them against, against Israel. This is called Har-Mageddon in Revelation. Chapter 16, I think, was it verse 11? Somebody have that verse on hand? Where it talks, the six, it's in the sixth bowl, then they're gathered together. Revelation 16, um, I had it on, a, on my thing. Hold on a second, let me look. Where's my chart? Are you saying that Armageddon is Gog and No. On my timeline, I said, well, show me what you're saying. That's right. I'm saying this time, at this time in history, this same, just because the name comes up again later, kings of the north, he calls him Gog, the prince of Gog, all he's doing is identifying him as a marker point. Later, we see Gog again come at the end of the age. So you're saying this is Armageddon? Yes. The reason I'm saying it is because at this time, what happens once it's finished? Once this, uh, this war happens, what is the follow-on to it? There's seven years of burying the dead. At the end here, here's the, here's the point. At the end here, when you're talking about that war of Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20, right? It happens at the end of the thousand years because Satan is released for a th- after a thousand years. You guys looked at this in your Revelation references. Okay, so when he is, Satan is released, what happens? What falls from heaven? And what happens immediately to the earth? It's all burned up and gone. Will there be seven years of burying dead? No. No. Right. The supper of the birds, when does the supper of the birds happen?
But you're, do, you're, you're making the mistake of following the word Gog. Don't do that. G-O-G. Oh, the Lord. Okay. Say the Lord. Okay. Yeah. I know. It's, you know what? Even in my typing, the whole week, I, I kept ty- typing God and Gog back and forth. I had to go back and fix it a hundred million times. Okay. All I can say is that what you have to do is look at the events that follow it. This war, what follows it is activity and people going on to the land where they're going to live securely. They're going to have this, this time of peace. This, so this war that we're looking at here in Ezekiel 38 uh, and 39 is this time right here at the end of the seven years, the battle of Armageddon, because the result of it after it, what follows it is the kingdom of God. God on earth for a thousand years. What seven years of peace? So it never says there's seven years of peace. What are you talking about? The it's going to take you to it's going to it's it's not saying seven years of living in peace. They're living in security. Okay, pseudo peace. So Israel, Israel is living without bars and gates. No, they don't go into the wilderness until here. It's okay. Remember, they will come against Israel on horses when Israel's living securely. Okay, but the, but you have to look to see what follows it also. Okay, let's go on and let's do the rest of the, the, the verses, okay? So 17. It's okay. You know what, you guys? If in the end you still want to put this as Gog and Magog at the end of the thousand years, then you have to, you have to work out how you get seven years for them to bury dead and so forth. And I'm telling you, that's a conflict that you can't resolve. Not if you're talking about that they had a promise from Antichrist for a seven-year peace agreement. And so they're living what they think is in peace for those first three and a half years. And that's when they demise a plan against them. And in the middle, they start, to, they start this plan because they, that's when the Antichrist raises up his ugly head and says no, that they have to take that mark. By the time you get to the seventh bowl, now the kings, in the, well, actually, it's the sixth bowl, the kings of the earth, Rise up and come against Israel. Okay, I think that, you know, what's very interesting to me, that is the argument that a lot of people get hung up on. It's because they don't understand the term of living in peace. What kind of peace is it? At this time, it's saying, it's not saying at this time they're living in peace because God is their God and his spirit is within them. He's saying they're without bars and without gates. So what it's saying is they've let their, their guard down to protect themselves. In the day of actual living in the thousand-year reign, will they ever need bars or gates to protect them, to give them security? Yes. 
Exactly. So it's not. It's not the thousand-year reign that they're talking about. It is before that, during this, those seven years. This progressive uh, unfolding of events starts out with a pseudo-peace made by the Antichrist who says, I'm going to make a seven-year covenant with you, Israel. You can come up to the temple. You can sacrifice and so forth. They let their guard down. They become friends of the world. They, they no longer are needing to have bars or gates to protect themselves. And it's at that time then that this guy devises a plan against them. Aha, their guard's down. Now let's devise an evil plan. Are you, are you following? Because, well, because there's only one war where they come against Israel in this manner. And that's at the end when Jesus comes back and does it. If they came up against Israel back here, this peace agreement would have never happened. They wouldn't have fled to, to Jordan. Jordan, they would have already, uh, well, first of all, they would have defeated them because at the end of this war, they defeat Gog and Magog. Because they would have defeated Gog and Magog and all those kings that came against them. All the way back here, what's the point of Jesus coming to rescue them? Well, maybe that's why they believe that God manifests and gives them peace is maybe he, they think he knows all those nations that are coming against Israel. So they say, oh, you must be God. You know, the, so they made a covenant with him, and that started the rest of the timeline of the tribulation. But it does not fit anything that we've studied anywhere else. All the other pieces that you add in here, when you start laying in all these other cross-references, they all are the same war, which is this one. Yes, yes. And they'll go on to the land, and while they're on the land, there's that place called the Valley of Hamangog or whatever it is. Yes. And pe- people, when they pass by coming to Jerusalem to worship, they will see it. And it'll be a remembrance of what God did to bring in the land. And that seven years is the. No, the Valley of Armageddon is located at, up, up top. This one, I think, it sounds like it's going to be down by the Dead Sea. That's what the. East of the sea, yeah. More like, almost like in Edom, near, um, right? Near Petra, even. I think it's the Dead Sea. And the reason I say that is because when Jesus comes back, remember what happens when Jesus returns? He comes back and he, he goes to Edom first, or I mean to um, Basra first. Do you remember why he goes to Basra first? So that Jerusalem and Judah do not get exalted above the rest. He comes first to rescue those who are hiding in the wilderness for those three and a half years. And then as he makes that trek up, that's that valley area. And I think that's where the masses of them. He says, he says and his sword is satiated. I can't, I always said satiated. It's a word I don't know. Anyway, it's got lots of blood on it. <laughs> yeah. And he's and that's that this valley where he begins that burial plot for them. And he marks the place where Jesus returns and begins this battle. Mm-hmm. Then why then, so that the Armageddon is in the valley of Armageddon. 
Yes, it starts up. Now, remember what we talked about before when we studied Armageddon? It's a campaign. It's not just one place and one spot. It starts there. We call it Armageddon. It's not a battle that takes place in Armageddon. It never does take place in Armageddon. They come down to Jerusalem and attack Jerusalem. Armageddon's above. They come, yeah, but it's up top. They come down to Jerusalem. Jesus comes to, okay, on a map. Let's see, I'm going to get this really messed up. But they're going to be over here hiding in the wilderness. Armageddon is up in here, right? And and, uh, Jerusalem is somewhere in the middle. I'm just really bad with this map. This is super duper not whatever. Okay, so when Jesus comes here, he lands, he, and he makes his trek up here. Along the way, he's shedding blood of all the peoples. And somewhere in here is that place where the Dead Sea would be. These two seas are, right? The Dead Sea down here near, the, near the, um, uh, Edom. This is Edom, right? All of this, actually, this whole section is going to be all present-day Jordan, right? Okay, so when Jesus comes back to rescue those, those Israelites who are hiding in the wilderness and he begins his battle there, that's what we're looking at in Ezekiel 38 and 39. He comes, he, he, they, engage in a, they engage in a battle that begins here but doesn't culminate until he hit, hits Jerusalem. When he hits Jerusalem, they've come from Armageddon down because it says they come from, from the north, Right? They come down into uh, Israel to attack them, and the Euphrates River is even dried up for them to get passage to come in, so which means that there's a lot of kingdoms, and somebody else brought that up. But do you remember the, the other kingdoms like uh, Iran, Iraq, all those Persian, I mean, all those areas up in there? So the kings from the north are going to come down into Israel. They're going to hit Jerusalem eventually, but they're going to start at, at this place called Har-Mageddon. That's in Revelation chapter 16. I think it's verse 11. But that's where they gather for that war. It's the sixth bowl. Okay? I'm going to put on here. Sixth bowl. That's when they gather for this war. Then when you see Jesus return, it's the seventh bowl. And he, ha- and he comes to Basra. Right? At Basra, it talks about the, the sword and how he is going to basically, there's a slaughter there for him. And so he slaughters, starting there to release them. They come with him, and they begin to fight with him in that day. Let's go really quickly just to, to try to put this together again in a little different light. Is that it? Sixteen, sixteen. Can you read that out loud? Mageddon. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the kings of the earth. If you go in there and look at it, it's the kings of the earth. Some? Of the east, right. But from the east also, right. So they come down from the north, and there's a coalition of them. It's not just one king. He comes with all his friends. Now, what did we already see in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39? How many other kingdoms join him? Many. Right, many. So I, I really think it's, the logic of it is this. Once the end of this war, war happens, there's, there's a time of seven months and seven years mentioned. 
and it talks about that being a time of cleansing their land and burying the dead. As if there's a need to bury the dead because they're going to continue on, on life on that land. Are you, are you following the logic of that? So it can't be here at the end of the, the thousand-year reign because what happens at the end of the thousand-year reign? The earth is destroyed. It is no more. There's no need to bury the dead. God's just going to burn it all up. First Peter tells us that. It will melt with intense fire, right? So you can't put this war at, at the end of the seven years, and you cannot put it at the beginning. It, is, it has to be when Jesus comes and he, and he has this day of war on behalf of Israel because the conclusion of it is they enter into their land and they reign on it and they cleanse it and it goes on forever. And it, ta- and it talks about it specifically, seven years then, they do that. Well, they wouldn't start the seven years of cleansing if it started back here. This whole thing is seven years. They'd be done cleansing the land before the seven, before the seven years of tribulation finished. Does that make sense to you now? Yeah. Okay. It's, that's what I'm saying. It's a quick thing. When you look in Revelation chapter 20 and you see that war called Gog and Magog, the earth is, is it literally fire rains from heaven and it's consumed. And it says that the, that the earth gives up her dead and, and Hades and Sheol give up their dead and they go before God's great white throne judgment just like that. So what happens is this fire happens. We get a new heaven, a new earth, and we get the great white throne judgment. Right? And those who are judged... So you, get, you really have like three things happening all at once. This war that's mentioned in Revelation 20 of Gog and Magog. And fire comes down. That's why I did the fire. Fire comes down, devours them. And then if you merge that with Peter and with, um, what was the other one? Here. Well, unless, but God has really given us a lot that we can lay in. Again, it's this, make your lists and lay things in, in compartments. And I'm telling you, it's so easy when you do it that way. If you don't compartmentalize your facts and line things up that look alike in the same places that look alike, you can do just what we've done this morning. Go, okay, now wait a minute, but I think that's here. No, I think that's there. Well, you can say, I think that, but the thing is, the logic has to come in. What happens at the end of this war of Ezekiel 38 and 39? They go on to their land and they live in, in real security for a thousand years with Jesus. Previous to that, they had a pseudo-security where there was no bars. Well, we, they aren't even going to have bars in the days when Jesus is on this earth. That's not even going to be a factor and it wouldn't even be discussed in scripture, right? So those, the fact that they mention no bars means it's before Jesus comes back. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. There'll be, there'll, be, there'll be minuscule revolts because what we do know is at the end of the thousand-year reign, there is a multitude of people who come up. Satan is released, and he, and he brings them up, and it happens very quickly. This last judgment, this Gog and Magog thing that happens at the very end of the thousand years, I believe happens really quick. Once Satan is released, it's, it's a really fast event.
say, God, it's just the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Yep. So it's been almost a, I mean, through the thousand year reign. They're going to know. <laughs> They're going to have already known, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. That's my point. I don't Yes. We absolutely know that because that's what Ezekiel says. Well, and that is what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel says they, could, they devise an evil plan. Why? He says, on that day, thoughts will come. You will devise an evil plan, and you will say, I will go against the unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest and that are living securely, all of them living without walls and no bars and no gates to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods and who have who are living at the center of the world so they and it talks about them wanting to come to capture spoil do you think that during the thousand year reign uh time frame if you wanted to put it somewhere else would any of these kinds of activities be going on with jesus christ ruling and reigning and there being true peace on the earth Would there be this kind of evil demise coming up? The answer is no, of course not. So this has to happen certainly before. I believe that it happens when Jesus returns and it's Armageddon. And then this gets reinforced when you start lining it up with what he says happens during that time when Jesus returns. Go back to your verses in Revelation 19 that you did. He says um, in Revelation 16 is the one I first looked at, 13 to 16. Uh, this, it's, he's talking about the seven bowls, the wrath of God. <clears throat> um, he says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are uh, spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. Now, remember, one of the things that we've already seen at the middle of the three and a half years was that there were signs and wonders done that caused a lot of people to take the mark of the beast. Remember that? The false prophet gets in there even and tries to convince people, and that's one of the ways, signs and wonders. So it's, it's saying that these are the things that they've been doing. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk around naked and will not see his shame. So here Jesus is in, is in putting in this statement in the sixth bowl. He's coming for this battle, right? And they gather together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So they gather at Armageddon, these kings do from the north. They come down and gather. And then they go down into Israel to have battle. In the meantime, at that seventh bowl, Jesus comes. He rescues them and brings them up. And they all engage in battle here in Israel. And that is called the battle of Armageddon. All of that. Okay, it doesn't have to happen at Armageddon. It just has to happen in this time frame. It's a, there's a campaign of things that happen progressively. Sixth bowl and seventh bowl. Revelation 16, um, 
17 to 21, this talks about a great earthquake such as has never happened before in extreme severity. Do you guys, does that sound familiar to what he says here in this chapter? Go to verse 19 in in, uh, Ezekiel chapter 38. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I think of this as just like Jesus coming in Revelation 19.14. Right? Okay. And he says, and every man's sword will go with pestilence and with blood. I will enter into judgment with him. Now that is the great wine press of God's great wrath. Remember the wine press of God's wrath that we studied in Revelation? That's what this is right here. The blood and I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. A torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. One of the places we looked, do you guys remember how big were those hailstones? 70 pounds, unbelievable, and it's going to just wipe them out. Kind of makes me think, I I went back and looked when I was looking at um, Pharaoh and that particular time. One of the plagues, he told the king of, he told Pharaoh, anybody who's out when the hails come, they'll die. And so one of the servants apparently believed him and brought his in and they were saved, but the rest were were all killed. And that's the same kind of thing. It's going to be huge, huge hailstones that are going to fall. And fire and brimstone. What is that? That's the end of the age for sure. That is in that seventh uh, bowl. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of the world. So we know this happens right here at the end of the seven years. This is when he's making himself known, and then he comes to rule and reign for that thousand years. You guys are really making it tough for me. I didn't get through our first paragraph. Seventeen. Let's go. We did, I knew this was going to happen, though. Didn't I tell you this was going to be a hard one? Seventeen to twenty-three. And he says, "I will call." Um, for a sword against Gog on my mountains. Um, the Gog and Magog is a landmass, and the reference, the point of reference is for identification purposes. Okay. Well, it's going to be at the at this time. It's going to be the Antichrist, and yes, he will be. Because it's a it's a it's a landmass, a group of people, Gog. It's also it's two things. It's a person and it's a identifying marker of a people group or a from a location, a geographical location. Yeah. So the Gog will want to come back down again at the end of the thousand years, and they're going to at that time. It just says that that, that thousands of them. I think what happens is at the thousand end of the thousand years. They just, they don't want to submit to Jesus. They don't want to go and give their, their sacrifices as Jesus will require in that day. And so they rise up against him at the end of the age again. But the, 
And Satan comes, that's right, and Satan comes and deceives them. So I don't know about you guys. Let me show you. I'll just show you my pictures. I did some progressive pictures here where I show you uh, Jesus coming back on, with his, on his horse. Then we see Satan is bound, and the kingdom is set up for a 1,000 years. Can you see that? Just so you can kind of see it. You can come look later. I'll show you. I'll, okay, and then we see Satan released. And now he's going to judge them. The dead are judged. This is the great white throne judgment. The dead are judged and we get the new heaven and the new earth. So I gave myself visuals for each of the progressive pieces out of Revelation that we already have studied and we know are locked in and they're good, right? So these are good for us. What we have to do is merge Ezekiel into it to say, where does it fit? Where do these events fit? Yeah. Right. And that's what I'm saying. And later when Gog is referenced again, it's a land area that is north of Israel. It's not saying, okay, if I'm going to give Susan the name Gog and then she gets killed, obviously later she doesn't show up a thousand years later and get killed again. It's just the ones from the north come down against Israel. It's an area that's identified by that title. It's a land more than a person. Although in this, originally, this, this in, in Ezekiel 38, it calls him a prince also. So it gives him a quality of being an individual who we know is going to be the Antichrist at the end of the age. So that prince, which is what Daniel spoke of, the prince who is to come, he will make a pseudo peace with him for seven years. They'll think they're at peace and then Gog will come down who is Antichrist, and come against them, and he will do these things, okay? And it's not the full picture. It's only a piece of the picture. You can't take it isolated all by itself and get the whole story. You have to piece all the pieces from all the different references in there together. Uh Part of the thing is that people want to make this one continuous boom. Yeah. Where as if he is indeed the Antichrist, there's a... Progression. That's right. It's what, what, and what gives us the, the absolute lock-in times is both Daniel and Revelation, which is why having done those first really help you a lot. It's almost would behoove us if we would stop right now, go back, pull out all of our Revelation stuff, spend a couple of weeks relaying out what we absolutely know, and then we would all get on board. You, I know you would. I know, Lois. I'm so sorry. Will you give me another hour, please? <laughs> I need another hour. We're not done. I haven't even gotten through the, the, the chapter 38 yet. Um, I have a question. Yes, okay. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is far-fetched or not, but do you think that because the people are coming to get the spoils in Israel, that that could be sort of like Joseph with famine, that he saved? Oh, I don't know. There could be some... As far as, um, you know, similarity, I don't know. That's, that's too, that's, I don't know. It's kind of like I thought of Pharaoh too as far as the judgments and there's plagues and so forth. There are some things that, that you know, are, are familiar sounding. Um, okay, so I will call for a sword. I'm going to finish this one thing up. For a sword against, I know, I need one, against Gog on 
my mountains. But you know what, guys? I do not mind this at all. I love the discussion. I love the bantering back and forth. I want you to reason this through. I do not want you to take my word for it. And here's what we absolutely know. We know a day is coming when these things are going to happen. And, you know, we're just trying to piece it all out. The reason it's so difficult is because it's not fulfilled yet. That's why it's being so difficult for us to say, okay, this is an absolute, this goes here and this goes here and this goes here. But there are some things that I do think that we can lay out very clearly because of what has been fulfilled so far and because of some of the absolutes that we laid in place when we did our revelation study. If we will just recall what they are and lay them back out before us, then we should be able to lay these things in that Ezekiel is showing us here in 38 and 39. Don't.